Hey everybody, this is a Dennis Anyone Extra. I've got more with Doug Spearman. He's going to talk about his Annie Lennox outing and a lot more. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. I had a great conversation this week with somebody who works for a company called PodTrack. They're going to try to help me grow my podcast. And here's how you can help me do that. There's an audience poll on my Dennis Anyone Facebook page. If you scroll down the timeline, I'll try to make sure that it's always in the mix there somewhere. If you can take that poll, it's not very long. If I get a certain amount of people to take that poll, they'll have a better idea of who listens to this podcast. They'll be able to maybe match me with an advertiser or two, and I won't die in a cardboard box under a bridge. So I'm asking you to do that. If you can do that, that would be great. If you want to help me keep this podcast free, there's also a tip jar on my Dennis Anyone Facebook page on the left-hand column. Just scroll down. And also, if you can like me uh, on Facebook, that'd be awesome too. So without any further ado, here's more with Doug Spearman. All right, this is a Dennis Anyone Extra, and I'm still with Doug Spearman in his... I almost said Spearman. I don't know why. Do people ever do that? All the time. Okay. Uh, it's because you're refreshing. You're crisp and refreshing. Wow. Uh, and we're in his uh, cute little place. And you had an Annie Lennox experience this week. Yes, I Break did. it down. Okay, so my partner, John, is the most amazing boyfriend in the world, and he actually pays attention, which is what I like. Right. And he wow. pays attention to the things that I like. So he has a, a, he's a trainer, and he has a client who owns a space where they were evidently going to hold Annie's listening party for her new album, which is wow. a cover album called Nostalgia. Beautiful. And John said, hey, don't make plans on Tuesday. He right. Said, I said, so, like, because he's really great about surprising me. Like, you know, show up at this place at this time, wear this. Right. And I was like, so we were talking Tuesday afternoon, and I said, okay, look, what am I, am I supposed to eat first? He says, there might be food, I can't tell you. I'm like, what am I supposed to wear? I'm like, just freaking tell me where we're going. Right. And he said, okay, so there's a listing. We're going to, Annie, we're going to see Annie Lennox right. with like 100 people at Hollywood Forever and listen to her first album, her new album. And wow. I was like, ah! So you get there, and do they play the album first and then she talks? Yes. Or how does it they, work? They the, they're, they're actually releasing the album on vinyl. Wow. So they, they played the first side. They have a little record player that they put put it on in front of well, you? Well, no, they had, believe it or not, there was this, uh, on stage there was a gramophone. There was a giant old gramophone, a great gramophone. And Amazing. for you, it's for those who don't know what a gramophone is, it's the first record player. But no, they played it over the loudspeaker, but the, the room in, uh, in, it was a larger room, something like this. And so it has a wooden ceiling, so the acoustics are amazing in the room. And then the stage is lit with is like all your candles, like there I don't know, like a hundred candles all around, two chairs and a gramophone. And then after they play six songs, which were very complicated for me because, believe it or not, I'm Scottish. Right. Like what? Yes, I am. My father's family. I had a DNA. T- I had a DNA test after my de- after my mom died because there were some crazy stories that I found about like our last, my last, my dad's last name was changed. And right. there were some stories, some competing stories about who my grandfather was. And the one thread that they completely left out was that he was white. Yeah. And it turns out like my gene, my DNA is mostly Scottish. And it's also from Ab- our families from Aberdeen. My dad's family's from Aberdeen. In Scotland. Uh-huh. Which is where she's from. So I've always had this tie to Scotland and always tied to Annie Lennox. And, and I'm also from the South. And my mom's from Tennessee and my dad was born in Mississippi. And, you know, we were raised in Maryland and D.C. is the South. I don't care what anybody tells you. It right. is the South. 
And um, so these songs that she's singing are like, are very complex. So on one side, on one end of the spectrum, they're very sort of like white. Isn't it great to be in the, in, where is it? St. Louis, where was it? Uh, someplace in the summertime and yeah. sitting on the porch and Annie Mae's baking a blueberry pie right. and it's all jasmine and moonlight magnolias. Yeah. And then on the other end of the scale, she does... Uh, Strange Fruit, which was a Billie Holiday right, song about lynching. So it's very comp. I was like, wow, this is really complex for me. And she was literally as close to me as the wall. Yeah. And I was like, this is incredible. And what she ta- and the thing about Annie Lennox is I've been a huge Annie Lennox fan as long as she's been on in the public psyche. Right. And I got to see her right before it was my twenty right before my twenty first birthday. I saw Eurythmics in a bar in. Washington DC in my hometown called the right. Wax Museum and I it was one of the it's still one of the best concerts I've ever seen and their first number was What I Lie to You I'll never forget that um she came out in this white captain suit and she had a plastic mask on and right. she had a leopard skin thrown over her shoulder right and um I've paid attention to her and I saw her I saw her in 80 I saw her in 83 85, no, 84, no, uh, 80, no, 83, 88, 2004, and last week. Yeah. And I listened to her voice and I bought everything she's ever sang. And her voice has gotten her, it's dropped through her experience. Like she, she and Dave broke up. They had a really screwed up relationship, but they're still partners, creative partners. She had a bad, she had a really fucked up marriage to a Hare Krishna. She had a daughter. She had another marriage. She's been through abuse. She was, you know, she was literally the, the aid spokesperson for, I mean, she really is. Right. Uh, she, she walks a walk and talks to talk. She goes out there. She champions women and uh, AIDS as it affects women, especially in third world and sub-Saharan countries. And, you know, her voice has dropped from being this very beautiful head voice to this sort of gravelly, like she sings from down here. She right. sings from her vagina now. You know what right. I mean? Sure. And she's about to be 60, but she came out. And I know how hard her life has been and the pain that she sings. And then, you know, that she's from Aberdeen, Scotland, which is not the nicest place in the world. Right. You know what I mean? And I've seen, and she came out and she was just light and engaging and present and charming and honest and and vulnerable and humorous and all those things that she could come out and still be Annie Lennox and engage completely through everything that she's lived through was completely vindicating for me. What were some of your favorite moments of it? Was there anything she said that stuck with you? Well, she talked about the fact that, you know, like what we talked about in the previous hour about the fact that creative people are sort of madness and and she talked about she literally did this thing with antennae in her head. She was like, we have our antennae up and we, we are very the world can be very hard for us. She yeah. talked about the fact that the world can be very difficult. Life can be very difficult for creative people because, like I said, you've got all this stuff coming into your head. And she said, but it's really... And then she described her day when she was working on this album. Like, she would get an idea. She would go look on YouTube for... Because she didn't know a lot about American jazz yeah. and these standards. So she would find something on YouTube and she would noodle around with it all day. And then she'd come home. Her husband would come home and he, she'd say, would you mind listening to this? for a little, right. Just play you a couple things. And um, I'm like, that's my day with John. 
like I'm here, I write, or I'm working on like social media is part of my job, and then I, you right. know, like funding the movie is really important to me. So I spend yeah. a lot of time writing for people, writing people for money, right. setting up interviews, setting up things, and or then I'll or I'll you know I've started taking pictures, and I've got you know this photography thing going on, and I'm like, hey, here's who I shot today. What do you think of these pictures? Like I run everything by John. So right. it's like her day sounds exactly like mine. Right. And her her continued survival in the face of struggle and and the fact that she talked about, you know, like you'll be on stage and you'll be loving you'll be like the whole audience is beaming up at you, but you concentrate on the one person who's over there like she's like, like yeah. oh, look at the time. Oh Yeah. And you you literally that's the person in a thousand that you focus on. And right. I have had periods of my life where like my dad nearly derailed my nearly killed my my any idea of me being a performer or an actor. Why? Because when I was 16, I was doing 1776 in high school. And um, I had a solo. It was the first time I'd ever had to sing solo in a song. It was only, you know, it was only a chorus, you know, uh, one verse. And my parents, all, I always got them tickets like third row center. Right. And my dad... I went to step forward to sing, and I looked down, and I looked right into my father's face. And my dad was like... He's grimacing now. Yeah, my dad had... I, 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 my dad looked like he hated me. He, the, what the do you anger, think that face was about? Well, I know... That, is, that you're not... That you're into other things than... No, I, well, what I honestly think it's about is the fact that my dad was really jealous of me. I think that's really interesting. I know that my father wanted to wanted a career as a as a saxophone player. Right. And I know he wanted that, to have a creative life. He wanted to have a creative life. And my he father didn't. was very creative and he loved music. I mean, he he was almost a rain man when it came to American jazz. The the depth and breadth of his knowledge of American jazz and music was amazing. And I'm very glad that I inherited that from my father, that love of music and creativity. But my father never got to have any of his dreams. Not one thing he wanted happened. Wow. Nothing. He didn't drive the car he wanted. We didn't live in the house he wanted. We didn't live in the state he wanted to be in. He didn't do the thing he wanted to do. My father never got anything he wanted, except for clothes. Like yeah. he, he was very good about getting right. clothes. He had, his clothes were tailor-made. And I think that was his outlet. That's where he put it all. Yeah, he put it all in. So his... you saw his face. Did you talk to him after your son? No, I didn't. I, but I, what happened But everything was, was there. But everything was there, and it was like the first time I looked looked at him, like, he hates me. And the thing was, here's the worst part about it, I forgot the words. I stopped singing. Like, I looked at him, and I just went blank. I had that moment. Yeah, that would do it. And I just remember, like, the orchestra leader played the... Played the intro twice, played eight bars, 16 bars for me, and I'm like, I was, and then the, the guys came, and they just put their arms around me, and they marched me upstage. Oh, my God. And like, I never, and I didn't sing again for 10 years. Wow. At all. But you still wanted to be creative and stuff. It right. didn't kill you from that. No, it just, no, no. The singing, it, yeah, you put it on the Oh, singing. yeah. It was, it was, almost, it was 10 years before I sang again yeah. in front of people. More than 10 years, 79, 89, 90. It was 1991 before, that was 79, and the next time I sang in front of people was the spring of 91. What was that? It was, I, I was ordered to give a concert, or, or to sing a song by a guy in a hotel ballroom. Yeah. 
in front of a bunch of people. And it went okay. It was Broadway. I actually have a really good voice. Yeah. And um, and certainly did at the age of 28. But it was um, it was pretty amazing, and it gave me my voice back. And it was also the moment that I decided to act again. Yeah. And um, where was I going with all of that? We're talking about... Oh, Annie Lennox. Yeah. And, but she talked about, like... The moments that you don't give up and the, the fact that there are people that are going to hate you, they're going to think they love you or they're going to think you're crap. Or the one person. And, you know, I, I talk know. to friends who are like, you know, don't read the comments because for every, whatever you do online or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't read the, I am not that curious. Oh, well, I'm see, not that curious about reviews. Oh, for some reason, yeah. I don't have that thing where I have to read everything. I, like, I remember when my books were coming out, like... Give me the gist. Was it positive or negative? Can we use it? Can we pull a quote from it? Whatever. But I don't pour over every word. I'm not curious in a way that some of my other creative friends are. Oh, I am. I read my reviews. Yeah. And I'm always amazed that, like, I'm always amazed that, like, the people, like, Hot Guys With Guns was incredibly polarizing. Yeah. For people. You know, it was, you know, it was very polarizing. And, like, it made some young gays angry. And why? Because I think they look at sex in a very different way that my generation does. Right. And the the, the part of the story in Hot Guys with Guns is the the sexual currency of living in Los Angeles. Your sexual currency as a person living in Los Angeles. What you look like, who you go, what parties you go to, who you are, and how it gets you in trouble. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And or how how it. But is so determinative, yeah. even if we don't want it to be. Right? Are you fuckable? My, yes. actually, my acting teacher. I remember thinking, like, if somebody came to LA and said, "What? What do I need to do?" And I'm young, and I'm like, "Get as hot as you can. Do all the other stuff, but figure out your gym shit. Get it to fucking together, because that's gonna matter." Well, and I'm is. like, not the person. I'm not the spokesperson for that way of life. But it's something that I thought in my life. I don't know if I would give that advice now. I'd probably well, do something always, more heady and spiritual. I, but there were times where I was like, fucking figure that out. Well, I, I, having like, I moved here from Boston. Right. And I, like, my waist size went down two inches, and I had a six-pack, and I had an eight-pack. Fuck, I was painted nude. I was photographed nude. I was, you know, I was, you know, people used to chase me down the street. Like, yeah. I, I had some, I had that thing. Right. And, um, and it, but I wasn't happy. Like, I never could keep a boyfriend. Right. It wasn't until I got, like, sort of soft and doughy that, like, I was, like, like, suddenly You look I, fantastic, by the way. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, but I don't have, but, you know, I don't have the body that I had at 29 or even 35. Do you right. know what I mean? Yeah. And, but I was you. never happy. That's, a, just, that's its own kind of drudgery. That's its own oh kind of God, fucked up Oh, my God. It's not. slavery. Yeah. It's slavery. And but, and you're always like, am I enough? Am I bigger than that guy or that guy? Like, I, I think that's its own sort of thing. I never have to worry about that. Thomas. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I hear you. Okay. Uh, All right. Sorry. Sorry. I just no. had to throw a little Sophie Tucker moment in there. That's good. I like it. Mm. Um, but about about not giving up in creativity and, and reading the reviews, because Annie Lennox talked about, like, you know, there are people who are going to hate you, but you got to, haters hate. Yeah, and you got to do it anyway. And a lot of times, it's about it. them anyway. It's always about them. Yeah, you know, every review, every every criticism, every and you know, John Sibelius has a quote. John sent me a quote. My John sent me a quote from the classical composer John Sibelius. He says, "Pay no attention to critics. No one ever put up a statue to a critic." Yeah, and I'm like, that's right. You know, that's interesting. Yeah. 
You're talking about your father. I, my father never came and saw one thing I did. Oof. And it didn't, I was okay with it. I got, I figured, I got him early on that he wasn't like there for me, like that he didn't, that he wasn't going to be that kind of there for me. And for some reason I, I made peace with that early on. I don't think it's been this thing that bugged me. Like I always felt like I was kind of an accident kid, like eight years after the first rush of five. Dude, my mother was 42 when I was born. Yeah. So, and I was like that thing. And I think that he never, he never got me. He was never abusive or me. Like he wasn't nice particularly. Um, but he was never like, he, he was a good provider and all that stuff. But I knew I got early on that he wasn't going to be my emotional creative champion at all. And I was okay with it. But if he, if, but if I'd been in Once Upon a Mattress, say for example, in which I played the minstrel, and he'd been sitting I out there, I wanted to play that part so bad. Really? Oh my god, what a great role! I don't remember. I just remember wearing green tights and a certain color belt. I, but if he'd been sitting out there with a with a groan on his face, that would have probably been rough. It's interesting. But um, and then going back to the review thing, I don't, I don't, I'm not that curious what. I mean, I, I kind of want to read them, but I don't need to know every comment, every thing. I've, I can kind of let it go a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I as a writer and someone who's written for money and had to take directions, I don't mind reading the criticism because I've had to take notes all the time. Yeah. And, you know, a painting, a, any work of art is made, only exists because somebody's looking at it. Right. So one of the reasons I read those things for is to see if something co- comes up over and over again, and then yeah. I pay attention to it. I think there's an absolute value to it. You know, sure. so I want to know, like, if you get a note three times from three different people, yeah. the same note, then it's something you need to, to, yeah. to check out. And I want to know how it's being received. But, you know, sometimes you're like, this is just somebody's vitriol. Yeah, you know, for sure. And that's like, that's pretty clear. But if there's anything to be g- gleaned out of it, I try to do that. Yeah. Now, what if you, you, we need to follow up on that thread with Hot Guys with Guns and the... The young people saw, didn't like the, didn't connect to the way the sexuality was portrayed. Expand on that a little bit, because I feel like we touched on it. Well, it also depends on the city. Yeah. You know, like, like the movie didn't play well in Toronto for some reason. Did they think that the guys were too shallow or too L.A.? or too too shallow, too L.A. And I kept, and one of the things that I would say at Q&A is, like, I live in the only city where over the top is normal. Yeah. And I said, there's nothing, I mean, like, and I would always tell people, And you knew it, though. That movie knew it. Yeah. You weren't buying, you weren't saying this is how everyone should live. You were kind of winking at it, I thought. Well, I was just like, there's nothing, nobody in that movie that isn't based on a real person. Mm hmm. And even Pip's relationship with his mother, Patricia, is based on my, a, a section of a, a time in my mother, in my life with my mother. Right. Do you know what I mean? I didn't know it was creepy to, like, I didn't know other people did not go into the bathroom and talk to their mother when they were taking a bath. Right. Or, like, even wash their back. Right. And I'm like, oh, is that creepy? Is yeah. That, is it? Oh, and well. I'm like, oh, okay, okay. well, we're going to make it creepier. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that was not, that was kind of normal in my life. Yeah. You know, like, my mother would call me into the bathroom, and she would be taking a bath, and she'd want to talk. Right. And she'd, like, wash my back. Yeah. You know? And, like, so I, I didn't have any, like, icky feelings about it, but I was like, wow, this is my life. These are, Danny is literally, there are conversations in the movie that are dial- scenes of dialogue that are based on my experiences as a black gay man in, in Hollywood and West Hollywood. Yeah. You know, I, but I've never became a private detective, although I would 
I, you know, I still think about going to private detective school. <laughs> you have so many things that you can do and that you like to do. I think oh, that's yeah. amazing. But um, but I think they have a. It was too shallow. I think people. I think a lot of people's. You know, like if you're not. If you. It was amazing. Even before I shot the movie, when the script was making the rounds, you can tell people's comfort with sex and how sexy they think they are, or how much sex they've had by their reaction to the script. That's interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting because I'm a pretty sexual person. Right. I'm, you know, it's so funny because one of the things that bugs me about playing bugged me about playing chances. All of my sex scenes got cut out of the TV show, and he was kind of like playing. Uh, it was like walking around in a wet wool suit that had shrunk. Right. You know what I mean? Because and who wasn't who you could play that part, but it's not. It wasn't like typecasting. It wasn't no. like who you are. But in see, the people room. think that's who I am. Yeah, I could see that. And, I could see that, and also if you weren't given the. It, it, the opportunities to show that other stuff seem to get cut out and yeah. stuff like that would be so, frustrating. I mean, my, believe it or not, sex is a big focus of my life. Yeah. I was raised during the sexual revolution in America. Yeah. We had Playboy and Cosmo on the coffee table right. when I was growing up. My parents were sexy. And were they, were they cool other. with you being gay? Oh, yeah. My mother was like, and here's what you need to know about men. Wow, that's incredible. That's <laughs> oh, my cool. God. My mo- by the time, you know, my mother kind of figured it out by the time I was seven. So. Right. She was like, you're going to be an interior decorator or a fashion designer. And I was like, okay. That's so cool. I mean, my dad wanted me to be a lawyer. but right. So I knew about I know about law, and I had to study law, and, and also the history of furniture making in America. Right. I was the only 12-year-old who could pick out, you know, English, Irish, and American Chippendale patterns. Right. Um, For your future as a decorator. Yes, exactly. And my mother would give me decorating books. And I'm, I'm not kidding. I'll pull out a couple. So um, going back to the people reacting to the script of Hot Guys with Guns based on their own feelings about sex. Yeah, exactly. So I grew up with where sex was normal. Yeah. And, you know, in a world where it wasn't stu- – because I also came out before AIDS. Right. You know what I mean? And right. And sort of the free reeling, wheeling la- – like I, I would say I was the last kid at the barricades during the sexual revolution. Right. Like we got there, we had like three days, and then right. they fucking called the war. You were the – in Lane Biz, you were the <laughs> exactly. kid on the top waving exactly. the, waving the like, flag. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know what I mean? And so – but, you know, but HIV, AIDS, all – the sex has changed so much in the last 35 years. And I think the generation, I'm really amazed at how lack of sex, not lack of sex, but how unsexual, unsensual, that's the word, how unsensual men tend to be now. Right. There was a great article in New York Magazine about PrEP and Truvada and and Mm -hmm. how that's, uh, what's going on with that now. And there was a psychologist that said there are a whole generation of gay men who don't know what it's like to have sex without anxiety. And that's tragic or sad. That's, and the, the simplicity of her statement that we equivocate sex with some kind of anxiety, whether it's, you know, I should be doing this, I'm not doing that, I want to do that. In other words, there's all, it's always been loaded for a whole post yeah, whole Yeah. And, and what comes with that loadedness, what you sacrifice what's lost, how hard it is to get on the same page with people and connect and stuff like that. Well, you know, luckily my early experiences with sex were really kind of carefree. I mean, right. You, you had a, you had a window. Yeah. Well, Pip and Danny are two aspects of my personality. Danny's the very, they're the lead characters in all guys with them. Yeah. And they're boyfriends. And I always see them as the same person as the same as there's my ego and my id. Right. 
you know, Danny's the, the, the what's right, the moral side of me, the right. what the world should see. And the, the it, it, Pip is all about, you know, he says in the movie, it's like, it's just sex. I mean, Which one was Mark Samuel? Danny? Danny. Okay. And uh, Brian, Brian McCardle played Pip. Plays Pip. There's another movie coming. And uh, it's like, haven't you just fucked around for the sheer hell of it? He asks his ex. Yeah. And, and I'm like, I, don't you ever just, didn't you ever just, I got into an argument once with Michael Lembeck, the director. Um, because we had a we had lunch together because his ex wife is a friend of mine. His ex wife is a friend Barbara of mine as well. Barbara, Barbara Deutsch. Deutsch. She did the podcast. Yeah. She's a, you're so, a Barbara Deutsch person too. Yes, I am. Barbara actually Barbara's the reason I wrote Hot Guys for Guns. Yeah, she got me to write it. Um, Good. She changed my life. She's Barbara the Deutsch, best. go see her. She's yeah, brilliant. yeah, yeah. They, they uh, there's a podcast on here. Yeah, that she where she did it earlier. But you know, Michael directed Connie and Carla. Yeah. And I, I didn't know that. Yeah, Michael directed Connie and Carla. And Interesting. I said, and I said, that was a terrible movie for gay men. And I and he's like, why? And I said, first of all, drag queens don't walk around looking like that all the time. That's You did a movie about transvestites. Yeah. Not drag queens. And I'm like, there was no sex. There was nobody ever going to get fucked in that movie, Michael. Yeah. He said, Because eh, he read Hot Guys With Guns and he read Welcome Sinners. And he wanted me to do Welcome Sinners first. And I wanted him to direct Welcome Sinners. Right. But he was mad about Hot Guys With Guns because it was like, there was so much fucking in this movie. And I'm like, well, that's what gay men do. Yeah. You know, we look at each other and we... And that's the thing that really kind of, I think, is lost on both... That Oz straight men, at least the straight men that I've talked to, who go, do you ever get this from straight guys? You're so lucky. Do you ever get that? I have gotten that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, you don't have to, like, buy dinner. Or right, right. You can just go, thing. like, the idea of, like, going to a bathhouse or something like or, that. Or just fucking a stranger. Yeah, yeah, with yeah. With no moral attachment yeah, yeah, to yeah. it. I'm like, I, and I tell people, I'm old school. I fuck on the first date. Yeah. You know, because if that's not right, I'm not going to, you know, right, we're exactly. not going to stick around for day three. Yeah. My two, maybe, because if you're nervous, I can understand. Right, exactly. Before, well, it's not, a, it's not an issue now because I'm in a relationship. Right. Um, but you know, like, I fucked on the first day. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I like you, you know? You know what's interesting about that? I find as I get older, I was more, I remember once saying to somebody, and I cringe when I say this, like, if you want something, if you want sex to mean something, you have to treat it like it does. Like, oh, please. What is that? I don't mean? know. I, I, I am, I, I did Sex wrong all the way. Like, I... I Oh, Dennis, what? I know, no, I just was not... Um, I got a late start, and I never quite got it, caught on, and then... You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like I... If I could go around again, I would do sex differently. Mm-hmm. Do you know and, the word uh, romp? Yeah. Nobody uses Nobody the word Nobody has romp. romp anymore. I but, romp! I still like oh, to romp. Fuck. What was I thinking about, though? Oh, the sex on the first day. Like... As I get older, like, uh, like if you meet somebody on Grindr or stuff like that, like, I used to, you know, there used to be that whole thing of, like, well, should you, da, 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 first date or whatever. Now, it's like, grab them while they're there, because people are too fucking busy and flaky, and it's not even about morality. Are they in the room? Are you feeling it? Do it. Yeah. Because they might not be in the room again. Yeah. It has more to do with logistics now than, than like, what's right or what's wrong, what would they think of me, or if we want to be something, or whatever. It's more like... You know what? Did you both show up? There, that's that's half the battle. Nobody had a conflict. Nobody texted. Sorry, can't like, make it. Yeah. Are they in the room? Yeah. Okay, fuck them. Fuck them. Fuck them now. Fuck them while they're in the room. Did you ever? You know, that's what it's about. Logistics. Do you know Gore Vidal? One of my favorite quotes is by Gore Vidal. He says, "Never turn down. Never 
turn up the turn, never turn down dessert or sex. Right. That's a great quote. See, I, I, I want to go back and relive it all and put that in the forefront. It's never too late, Dennis. I know. That's what I'm thinking. That's what I'm thinking. Um, I wanted to ask you something about Noah's Ark. Because I remember at the time, um, whenever there's a gay show, there's always like that. Who's out and who's not? And how are you going to do the press and all of that stuff? Was that an issue around that show? Hell yeah. I feel like it kind of was. Yeah, it was a big issue around and I, the show. And I feel like you were carrying the flag for, all right, I'll do the, I'll be on the, I'll be in the advocate and be open. Like, well, no, well, see what it was is like, I had already been in the advocate. Right. Like, in other words, I've I, already. I'm out. I mean, right. all you got to do is Google me and you were like, right. Doug Spearman, homo. Yeah. You know what I mean? Okay. I'm like, I, it's so funny. I just, quick aside, I went back to DC for something. Your legs okay? No, I'm, yeah, I'm a little. I'm a little crampy. Okay. I'm a little. I'm all right. All right. Um, I went back to DC, and I was really hoping the Washington Post would like put up a headline that said "Local cocksucker makes good." Right. You know, <laughs> too many words, too many letters. Oh. Come on. A local cocksucker makes good. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, like yay. Yeah. Um, but they, we had we got that we they actually sat us down for a press training. With a, for Noah's no, Ark. Yeah. Right this before, story's. I already can tell the story's going to make me. It's going to fucking unhinge me. Yeah, but it was the producers. It wasn't logo so much because I went to the president and I went to the, the, the VP in front of. And I'm like, excuse me, I have a conflict here because I'm out. Right. I'm not going back in the closet. I mean, like, we're doing, we're black gay men on a black gay show. They Why would I? But no, what it was was Patrick and Carol didn't want us to talk about our sexuality. They wanted us to be. Blank uh, slates. They wanted us to be blank slates, and they wanted us to be, you know, tabula rasa, or like, you know, just create an air of mystery. I'm like, excuse me, there's no mystery about my sex life. Anybody in the United States can tell you what, how, you know, what my sexual orientation is. Um, I've already been in The Advocate, and I'd already been in Out Magazine, right. as a, just from political stuff that I'd done. Right. And, um, and things that I'd gone to. So I'm like, I'm not going back in the closet... I said, I will make a deal. I will not talk about anybody else's sex life or sexuality, but I am going to talk about mine. And it was a big furor. It and would have infuriated me to know that you had been out as a reader and then read some other thing. It would have been like... Oh, yeah, people do it all what the kind time. Of, I know. Yeah. And it's infuriating. Yeah, I mean, like, maybe not most people aren't as aware of people's profiles or whatever, and but I, that would have been like... That, I feel like that's sending the wrong, way wrong message. Oh, it's didn't totally. It, didn't you bristle against that? Bristle? Yeah. Well, see, you have to also understand, I was the oldest person in the cast by 13 years. So I'm like, I felt like the grown-up in the room a lot of times. I'm like, uh, I would I, not have said, I felt I, like you all looked like peers, so that's no, your youthful. Fantastic makeup and genetics. Yeah. Um, shout out to Deb. Um, who's my makeup person on the show? Oh, cool. And Tina Tioli, who did it the second season. Anyway, um... But I, I literally, I said, I said, I'm not doing that. I put my hand up and said, I'm not doing that. And then I went and talked to Brian Graydon and I talked to Dave Mason. It's like, I'm not doing that. Here's what they want. And I can't. And I'm surprised the, they wanted that. I felt, I would feel like they would love to have somebody openly gay on a show like that. That's going to be getting that kind of press. But you have to understand. Yes and no. I mean, because, you know, in the... I worked more before Noah's Ark than I did after. Of course. You know, yeah, that, you know, getting on a TV series, I don't know, Carrie, who you are, can really kill your career. <laughs> because you become, you know, like, 
I had to realize that, like, there was a part of me that was going to get called Gilligan for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You know, you go through that thing where, like, you're so established with a character that you are that guy. Right. For the, everybody's imagination for the rest of your life. And that's why I hate it when people call me Chance all the time. Um, but, you know, the reason why I got the advocate cover is that Daryl wasn't out yet and didn't want to be. And nobody in the cast, like, you can only be on the cover of The Advocate if you're uh, a straight ally or you are openly gay. Right. And I'm like, I'm the, and like, it's like they gave it to me. Right. You know, because that was five days of negotiation. Holy shit. Five days where, like, they wanted Daryl on the cover and he would do it. Then they, well, they wanted the whole cast and nobody else who's gay in the cast was like, I'm not going on, I'm not doing that. And then Daryl wasn't ready to come out. And I was like, well, I'm out. And, and it was literally, I was there last. In order to get any kind of mention in the magazine, I was their last best Right, hope. if you were going to get in The Advocate. And I get the ab- where The Advocate's coming from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what I thought was really funny from the show, because they had to, like, suck up some crowd to come to me, because they were like, I'm like, I'll do it. Right. I'll do it. I'll go home. I'll do it. Yeah. And they're like, mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, they had to, I remember when they came to me, and they're like, well... We would like you to go, and we would like you to do X, Y. And I was like, wow. You can't see this, but I am just like... Cringing. Cringing in the fucking hypocrisy of it, or the fucking, you know, whatever. Did the pictures turn out good? Was it glamorous? It, it was. It was. There were some really great pictures, although I don't, like the, I don't like the picture on the cover, and I didn't want to wear that shirt. Yeah. And actually, I'm saying, you motherfucker, as the, the, if you look at the cover of the magazine, what I'm actually... Because my mouth is open, yeah. and I'm rolling up my shirt, because I didn't want to be on the cover in a white shirt. Yeah. And um, I did, for some reason, and they put me, like, I was, like, I had, there's a great picture of me, like, there's some great, I was in awesome shape, so I'm like, can I not wear clothes? Yeah. But they put me in some fabulous clothes. I had, like, a belt from Yves Saint Laurent that cost $800. Yeah. I was wearing, like, this, I, like, I had thousands of dollars worth of clothes. Right. To try on and, and play with, and it was great. Because I, I think really if wanted, you're going to be out on, on those magazines and, and take the career risk and all that stuff... You should get a fucking fabulous photo shoot. I did. I had a fabulous photo shoot. Okay. That's all I want. I I want that. It's glamour, glamour, glamour. Yes, I want more than one setup. I Uh, want a stylist. Oh, I had a stylist. A fan, maybe. You're bald. No, we had a fan. No, it was hot. But I had a room of clothes. Okay, good. Of designer clothes. Good, I'm glad. Do you remember who shot it? Oh, God, I can't think what his name is. He's, He's Oprah's favorite photographer. Okay. He shoots the cover of O Magazine. All right, good. That's so I had a really great photographer. Right. But the, the And Oprah always has the best lighting. Yeah. So you're in Oh, I was, I was lit like a motherfucker. Was <laughs> but I was rolling up my sleeve because I'm like, oh, this is and I said, this is the picture you're gonna take you mother you're gonna use you, motherfucker, and I'm rolling up my sleeves, and that's the picture that's on the cover of the advocate. I was like Uh And I was like, okay. Well, I bet I bet if I looked at it, I'd be like, Oh, that's super hot. But because of your experience with it, you were like, oh, yeah, that yeah. I'm, but that all those conversations, all that and that's not even talking about the creative part of the show. It's all the other stuff. It must have been a lot to navigate. It was. Yeah. Because we had very little input in the show. Yeah. You know, we had very little input. I was. Uh, I would secretly do things like I gave Chance a drinking problem. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like anytime. Chance, <laughs> that, but now, how do you do that? That just because, you just open up a flask in the middle of the scene? No, I would start. I would anytime there was a conflict that I felt like he couldn't handle, I would ask the prop guy for. a for uh, a wine glass. Wow. I said, can I have a wine glass, please? And could you put something in it? Or I would slur my words in a scene. Wow. 
You know what I mean? Like, I would always make sure that there was somewhere in the background there was a bottle of white wine. Yeah. And Or he was holding a glass. Or, like, literally, I would slur my words. Yeah. I would be the, you know, like, I would literally slur my words. And so I'm like, this guy has a drinking problem because he's miserable. Yeah. And the other thing is, like, I think Chance was completely miserable. Yeah. And unhappy in his life. Because, I mean, like, look at the choices he made. I'm like, I would fucking have, I would have kicked, like, people like, you know, you and Eddie and you're, you know. Yeah. I'm like, I would have fucking kicked that motherfucker to the curb. It feels like to me that Noah's Ark was one of those things that when it came out, there was all this stuff around it. Everyone had, you know, like, people watching it had all this together. And it wasn't until it had been on a while and almost gone that people really were like, oh, they were ready to, like, love it. Mm-hmm. Right? It feels like it, there was all this stuff going on. I and don't then, know. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, like, I haven't seen it in years. Yeah. I, you know, I, I have a hard time watching myself act because right. it's like, it's like coming across a dead body in the woods. You're yeah. horrified, yet you can't look away. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. And so I don't, I, I mean, and it was such a complex time for me. And, you know, the movie, I've never been so cold in my life because we were shooting in Nova Scotia. Yeah. And we were so isolated and so alone. And it was, quiet and scary and it was it was it was just and the house couldn't be heated we were in a house it all takes place in one location yeah i remember and i've got so i'd never in that like the inside of my chest cavity got cold but how were they not get, seeing your breath on camera they digitized some of it out really but they literally would yeah but we like there's a anytime we're in the dining room table which was on a porch that had been built onto this 250 year old house mansion and, or 220 years old. And um, we were sitting on an ex- – we were in an extension, and the, the, the heating couldn't be turned on the house because you could hear it. Right. Because it was, you know, it was retrofitted. So it was loud. So we're sitting there. Like, I'm, we're wearing, like, underwear clothes almost all the time. We're wearing two pairs of long underwear. And I have – we all have parkas on our laps under the table. Wow. And I have a hot water bottle between my legs. Okay? <laughs> Holy shit. It was that cold. That's I mean, it was so crazy. cold, Jensen was crying. Wow. Jensen was – they were like, you guys And you had to try to act. Yeah. Why couldn't they heat the house? Because you couldn't turn on the furnace because you could hear it. Right. So – Shit. That's some crazy-ass shit. Yeah, but, you know, like, what's the chick that was in um, – the Australian actress, blonde, who... Naomi was, Watts. Naomi Watts had been there, not too, like, two months before us. Right. And there was something where she had to be in a bikini on the beach. And they shot it in Nova Scotia in yeah. December. And they literally had to heat the sand. And she wow. had to wear a bikini on a blanket in December in Nova Scotia. So okay. Like, okay. If, if Naomi can do it, I can do it. Yeah. All right. Exactly. Um, this has been so fun talking to you. I think what you're up to is amazing and your journey is amazing. And, um, I'm very inspired by it. What, if you, if you could chart out the next few things that you do or how would you, where would you like your work to go? If you could get the, the phone could ring tomorrow. Ooh. Well, if as an actor, I want to fly in a movie, like like a superhero. Yeah, I want to fly in a movie. I want to be a superhero. I want to be like a middle aged black superhero. I'm a, I, I got it. I'm yeah. on it. I can actually see the shot. I actually yeah. know the shot that I want. Okay. Um, I would like to do that as an actor. I would like to have a sword fight. Okay. In a movie with sword with actual swords. With a yeah with okay. a sword. 
Uh, wow, I know. Well, wow, you, you went start. there. Well, wow, I, good for you, you know what? Baby, I know. See, baby you. steps, right? Baby steps. <laughs> um, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I would actually want to rapier it out with okay. somebody in a okay. movie. Um, I had a stage combat with... class when I was in college, and I feel like looking back, the in sexy male instructor was fucking some of the girls. I just have that feeling. That's fine. Yeah, if you can do. Yeah, it. why not? Um, I want to work with Tom Cruise. Yeah, really? Um, yeah, really. I really like Tom Cruise. I think Tom I think Cruise he's is, a great movie star. I think he's an ama- he's the template for what a movie star should be. Yeah, to be. and I really want to do a comedy with Tom Cruise. Interesting, because I, I love The Edge of Tomorrow. I think Edge of Tomorrow so, was like the best movie of the year. It was I'm, brilliant because he was so funny. Yeah, he especially got, in the beginning when yeah, he was a jerk. Yeah, he was great. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Um, I really want to do, I want to work with Tom Cruise as a director. I want to, uh, there's a bunch of movies that I want to write and direct and finish. I want, Hot Guys with Guns is not done. We're definitely going to do another one. But I want to eventually do a studio movie. Yeah. You know, I want to get something big enough where I become a studio director. I want to be on their list. Do you ever get this thing, and I get this sometimes from people in the industry, especially gay people, quit doing that gay stuff. Write something else. Write no, something. No, I don't get quit. But Why like, are you doing that? Well, people... Uh, but No, what I tell people is, like, don't worry. Everything I want to do is not gay. Yeah. I tell people that. But, I mean, everything I do will probably have a black character. Because black, to me, black Trump's gay. Right. Um, but I also feel like... And maybe you can relate to this. It takes a long time to get a project going. And it takes a long... A real connection to it and a long road. And sometimes the things, even though I have different ideas, the things that emerge through all of it are the things that are closest to me that are often my stories. Therefore, there's gay stuff. Right. So it's not like you You're set out somewhere. Yeah, but those are the things that you're most connected to that, that, that make it through the different drafts that make it through the different versions that, that, and also that for me, at least emerge the truest because they're based on something real. I mean, some of the things that I've done to try to write something mainstream, da, 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 they, they don't work as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, I think well, I, 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 I had a boss named Brian Franz who was the president of ABC Daytime and, and Buena Vista TV. And Brian gave me one of the greatest compliments of all time. He said, you can hit with both hands, meaning I could write, I can write a drama or I can write comedy. Right. And I, can, and I know that I can write a thriller or I can write a comedy or I can write a love story or, you know, I can write. Right. And, and it doesn't matter the genre because it's about people. Yeah. And you can just put whatever attribute on the person that you want. And, you know, the gay thing, I started because I'm a gay celebrity. I can't ignore the fact that I am a gay celebrity. Right. You know, as much as I would like to. Right. I have to start somewhere. Right. This is my platform. These are my people. This is where I start. Where it goes from here is anybody's guess. Right. You know, so to answer your, your question again about where I want to see next, I don't know. I mean, I just want to keep working. Right. I want to stay in the business. I mean, one of the things that Annie said the other night that was amazing, she's like, I just want to stay relevant. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, she said, I'm a recording artist, and she said, I'm not only a singer-songwriter, but I'm a recording artist. I love to sing and record music. And I'm like, I'm a performing artist. I love to entertain people. Yeah. How I do it, I don't care. Whether you read something I write, or I get to, I really love to do it if I can do it in person. I mean, if you're on the set with me, if you're on my set, you're having a good time. Yeah. Because I make it a good time. Yeah. You know? I love... I want everybody to, it's like a party to me. It's like throwing a, directing a movie is like throwing a cocktail party in the middle of a war. Right. To me, I've only directed shorts, but the feeling of it 
was like falling in love. It was exhilarating and exhausting. It feel like you've been hit by a truck at the end of it. Mm-hmm. But it felt like falling in love to me. It had that sort of, all of your senses are going, your mind is going, your... That's what it reminded me of at its best. Yeah, that's great. I have a lot more war analogies yeah. to, to it. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, somebody But it is a me, battle, for sure. Yeah, somebody asked me what it was like, and I said, I, and I was thinking, well, did you ever see The Hurt Locker? I said, I feel like Jeremy Renner. Yeah. Because Walking up to that thing. You, well, not only that, but then you, then what the, the secret is, you know it's hard, you know it's dangerous, you know it's scary, and the propensity for failure is great. Yeah. But then you see the, the movie, and you're like, he goes home, and he does the normal thing. Like, I go, you know, like, I remember after Hot Guys with Guns was done, and I was like, I gotta go to Trader Joe's. I'm not on a set. You know, like, I was counting down, like, a week ago, I was here, and like, yeah. two weeks ago, I was doing this. And then, and I always have post- Play depression, as I call it. Of course. It. It's you know a real I mean? thing, yeah. And and then you see Jeremy Renner at the end of the movie, like, choosing to go back and disarm bombs again. And I'm like, I completely understand why you make that choice. Right. You know? you There's something in a person that allows them to go through a painful experience and then grow from that pain and then yearn for that cathartic experience again. And directing a film, producing a film, is an incredibly cathartic experience Yeah, for me. What was it like to have Hot Guys with Guns finished and premiering at Outfest? Under the Stars? Spectacular. See, but, that's one of those moments where yeah. it's like everything you want it to be. Well, yeah, exactly. The, the, it couldn't have gone better. I thought they'll either lynch me, right. there'll be crickets, yeah. or I, it'll be a hit. Right. It was a hit. And I remember walking out on that stage and um, the love... The thing that made me want to act in the first place, the, the feeling you get from a live audience was there. That we're here, we love you, we're here to support you. And you're, you're, there's people you knew. It's your community. It's your... Well, it is, but it's also my peers. Yeah. And there were people there that I didn't know. Like, there's a Disney joke in the movie. Yeah. And, uh, and, and a guy who had been former production head of Disney was in the, movie, was in the, the audience when he heard the joke. And he, like, he high-fived this guy. He thought it was so funny. I love it. You know? What's the joke? Um, and we wrote it on the set. You know, Coppola yeah. says that movies are written on the hoods of cars. Right. Because you're like, oh, wait, why do we do this? And um, Jay Hughley has a line. This is, I've got a lot riding on this. And he says, it's, I've got a movie coming out, and it's, I've got a lot riding on this. And it's home, it was originally a homeless boy plus dog equals Christmas miracle. Right. And, um, and I changed it at the very last minute to... Oh, okay, I've got a lot of writing on this. Like, we were on the set, and Jay could barely get through it. I said, it, the line became, homeless boy plus dog plus talking possum equals Christmas miracle. Right. <laughs> Box office, a merchandising opportunity. Yeah, talking possum ass. is, you, you gotta know, have it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I just said, talking possum. It just yeah. came to me, and I was like, that's not me. That's the that's all the experiences I've had of like because there's always a talking sidekick. There's got to be it, and it's got. I like we haven't really had a good possum yet. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like a talking cricket, yes. or a talking cat, or a talking mule, Genies. whatever. Yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. So I mean, but it was like, but he said it so earnestly, like homeless kid plus dog yeah. plus talking possum equals Christmas miracle. It taps into that thing when with Hollywood people when they sort of um, spin a certain industry phrase and they don't realize what a parody they're being of themselves. I was in a meeting the other day and I was hearing another friend that was on a pitch meeting with a network person and he was talking and then this has happened this that she goes love it and love it 
And I'm like, I'm obsessed now with Love, <laughs> love It and, and love, love It. it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a law firm. Love It and Love It. <laughs> I, I like it because loving it isn't enough that she's got to really... Love it. Yeah, yeah, she's got to double love it. And yeah. I have another friend named Scott who had worked on... His company had worked on um, graphics for a movie. Uh-huh. And so they weren't really part of the producing side, but they, they came on afterwards as a contractor. And the movie did well at the box office. And that Monday, his supervisor came in and everyone was together. She goes, well, it looks like we got another hit on our hands. And I'm like, first of all, it wasn't your hit. But I I also love the idea that she's burdened by this hit. And that she's so proud. I don't know. And not only that, but she has to use 1950s variety logo lingo i know i love we got another hit on our hands yeah exactly oh what a shame love it and love it yeah Yeah. i love any of those turns of phrase oh yeah i do too yeah i love i love reading variety i love ankled yes meaning to leave something yeah or boffo yeah boffo is good you don't hear you know yeah you don't hear boffo as much as you boffo box office yeah like somebody ankled something yeah what the fuck i love that industry and i love when people say it unironically they don't... Unironically, that's the point. That was the whole point of Hot Guys With Guns. Yeah. Is that it was all the shit that people were, like, saying, like, it was real. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was like, you know, like, this is the way people talk here. Yeah. They believe themselves. Yes, that's what's so funny thoroughly. about it. They invest everything with such meaning. And they think it's so important. They think it's so, so important. And it is, I guess, to them. I guess it is. Yeah. Yeah. Because everybody comes to L.A. to reinvent themselves. Yeah, I guess they do. And they? some people get wrapped up in the story. Yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, I spun this. And I've seen it. I've seen people. You know, there's a syndrome. Sometimes things go so cliche, crazy, that you can't even believe it's happening. Or they, and it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, are you like, yeah. I, like, I have a friend who won the lottery not too long ago. Literally. Literally. How much? Five million dollars in the lottery. Holy shit. <laughs> Crystal meth addict. Oh, wow. Oh, fuck. Beautiful uh, party boy, former crystal meth addict. Made wins the still, lottery. Wins $5 million. Beautiful and had been a kept boy most of his life. Oh, my God. What the fuck? There's, Ex- there's a movie script. Exactly. And like, ooh, where's this going? Yeah, where's you know it going? I, mean? like, yeah, I don't know. I stay out of it. Um, but, you know, you read, so- you see stuff like that happen around you all the time. Or you're like, there's a mo-, Or like, I took my niece to, my niece had never been to L.A., and I took her to the Hollywood, no, to the Beverly Hills Hotel for lunch when you could still go before we were all mad at the Sultan of Brunei. Right. Um, and it was two summers ago. And so we pull up and who the fuck knew it was the Critics' Choice luncheon. Right. So we get out and the carpet's now red and it's usually pink. Right. And there are all these movie stars and TV stars on the carpet doing interviews as we're trying to go into the hotel for lunch. And right. she's like... Is it like this all the time? And then we yes. sit down. We sit down at a table, and Harvey Weinstein sits next to us. Right. Holy shit! I know. I felt like I was in a Lucy episode where right. she comes to Hollywood. You know, like right. So I'm. I am both awed by my experience here, grateful for it, right, and understand the blessing of it, and also see the incredibly funny and ironic side. Right. Of it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we get to do this. That we worked with Joan fucking Rivers or Kathy Griffin. You know, like, I've seen Kathy come out of the pool. <laughs> well, not, maybe not the best example but, for me personally. But, 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 <laughs> again, but, not, but, but, you know, there are people that, like, look at these people and go, wow. Yeah. No, for you sure. You know what I mean? And yeah, yeah, yeah. you're like, I would hire an assassin. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
Um, I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you so much. I could talk to you all day. Um, is there words that you live by? Something you think about? Something that's like your motto or your creed? Or, yeah, sure. Um, Why not? Yeah. That, that's that's it? it. Why not? Why not? Yeah. Why not? I like it. That's it. Very was simple. It, was it something you always had or was it born out of something? Well, it was born out of the fact that I used to be – fear used to be a big part of my life. And when I started taking chances and I started sort of going off the reservation a bit, like I could have, I had a job as a writer and a director at ABC in Washington and I could be very happy. I could have been living in Washington and then I took a job in Boston that was offered to me. And then I took, then I decided to quit that job and move to LA at $300 in five suitcases. Wow. And when I came to LA, Bill Carr, no apartment, $300. Holy shit. And I got a job my first day. Where, so, what's your job? I was a director for an advertising agency that had CBS as their main client. It was right. called Jacobs and Gerber. And Ray Jacobs and Stephen Gerber were my advertising mentors in TV. Great guys. So you fl- you landed here at the airport and you had those I, suitcases? I landed here at the airport. My friend Peter picked me up. We went to lunch at the Johnny Rockets on Melrose. I of course. And, and um, Kirstie Alley almost ran me over with her Mercedes convertible. Because I didn't, because I was, you know, from Boston. Yeah. So we just crossed the street whenever we wanted right. to. And Peter grabbed me, and luckily he did, because Kirsty came around the corner in a silver Mercedes convertible, just at the same time I stepped off the curb, and he grabbed me by the shirt collar and yanked me back on the curb, which is a metaphor in itself. Wow. And um, I was like, there was no other traffic on the street. Talk like, about why it. Why standing here? Yeah. And Kirsty Alley goes, oh, she was on Cheers at the time. She was hungry. And, um. Oh. That was a bitchy thing to say. I'm not that, I don't traffic in that stuff anymore. Go ahead. Okay. And then Stefan was, had just gotten married, and he was going to Italy on his honeymoon. And he said, well, come by before I leave. And I said, well, I just got here. And he said, well, just come by the office. So I walked, I, staying on King's Road, their office was on Fairfax. I walked from King's Road to Fairfax and went to say hi, and they offered me a job that day. And, oh, my um, God. And I worked there for six months. And wow. then CBS picked me up. So, and I stayed there for six years. What did that – did it say leap and something will catch you? Yes. Well, you know that uh, I am such a cliche because I believe in cliches. You know that well, cliches are cliche for a reason. Exactly. But you know there's a scene in, was it the second Indiana Jones or the third one? Second one, where he has to cross a chasm and he has to take literally a leap of faith. Yeah. And he just throws sand. He like there's, you can't see the path between cliff and cliff. Yeah. And he throws sand on it and it appears and yeah. then just starts walking. And... Uh, that's I, I look at life that way. Yeah. Like, you may not be able to see it, but if something is saying, go, go. And what I really find interesting is before he goes and does that, he has to figure out... It's the, it's the one where he has to find the golden chalice. Yeah. Um, the last cup that Jesus was supposed to drink out of. But he has to do, like, a hopscotch thing on the ground and come up with the name of God. Right. You know, Yahweh. Right up. Which I think it's really interesting. Like, all, this whole journey is about having faith in both God and finding – and the cup that he finds is a very simple cup. He's like, which would a carpenter's son choose? Right. And so he picks up the simplest cup and he said, and this turns out – it's Indiana and the Holy Grail. And yeah. it turns out to be the Holy Grail. It's the simplest cup. And, like, I look at that and, like, Steven Spielberg got it really right for me. That, to me, is my spirituality. 
which is having faith. If something says go, move forward. And the simple thing. Yeah. The simplest. I also think what you mentioned is not being governed by fear. Because I think it's easy to do that. You can be afraid, but the, the definition of courage is to be afraid and to do something yeah, anyway. Yeah, to not be that, let be, that be the guiding thing. Yeah. I'm going to stay here because I'm afraid. Yeah, well, fear is a lousy motivator. It's the worst. Yeah. My mother and father were afraid. That's I, what my and you see so it around happy. you a lot. Oh, yeah, people lead with their fear all the time. And people that are really successful sometimes, um, I think, sometimes, or, or seem to be successful. But they also, behind the curtain, don't seem at peace, or they seem... The slaves to that fear. I gotta keep going. I gotta. Get, uh, someone's gonna find out. I got. Uh, it's a drug. Oof. It's an ugly, ugly drug. Yeah. It's worse than crystal. Yeah. So, anyway. This has been fun. It's been very fun. Thank I you really, so much for this. really appreciate you taking the time and sharing and being so open. Um, support all of Doug's stuff. Check out Hot Guys with Guns. It's available online. Um, online and- on iTunes, uh, wolfvideo.com, and hgwgthemovie.com. You can stream it or buy the DVD there. Love it. Um, it's, it's, like I said, it's at Amazon. And it's coming to Netflix. Put it in your Netflix queue, It's a lot of fun. It's sexy. It's got great music, courtesy of our friend Mervyn Warren. Warren. Yeah. And uh, and then also help him out with Welcome Sinners. Please. Which is GoFundMe.com. Look for Welcome Sinners. And check um, me out on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. It's at Doug Spearman or Doug Spearman on Facebook. So awesome. All right, I'm the black one in the Indiana T-shirt because there are a couple black Doug Spearmans, believe it or not. Really? Mm -hmm. But you're the one. You're the one with the. You're the one that's every inch a god, right? <laughs> young strutting god. A, every inch a young strutting god. <laughs> I think that's going to be the name of one of these podcasts because I like to come up with fun names. All right. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, help me out by um, going and being a friend to Dennis Anyone Podcast on Facebook. If you want to donate to keep this podcast free, you can do that. There's a tip jar on that page if you Whoop. scroll down the left. And um, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Doug. Thank you. Bye.